This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Janice Lentz. Janice is an accomplished consultant and advocate across the hearing access advocacy and related political spectrum. She is the CEO of Hearing Access and Innovations, which is the only company dedicated to helping the world's business, cultural and entertainment institutions, government agencies, and mass transit organizations improve their accessibility for people with hearing loss. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Roman, for having me. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? So I have a daughter who has a hearing loss. And when she was diagnosed with a hearing loss, right after the pediatrician telling me she has a hearing loss, she immediately said there were special schools for her. So I hadn't even wrapped my head around the diagnosis and already the bar was lowered for her. And I couldn't process that. I didn't understand why that was so. I I, I didn't even understand what had just happened. And so once I um, managed her hearing loss, I realized that it was unacceptable um, for someone to lower the bar for her. And I decided it was easier to change the world than for me to lower my standards. And so I set up upon um, working to change hearing access for our daughter. It was a very selfish endeavor and started with the areas that impacted our family the most. And because we traveled excessively, I worked on wherever we went. Plus, we lived in New York City. So um, I worked on access that um, it's hard to live in New York City, not go to museums and theaters. And so I worked on those that impacted her. And then after a while, I realized that um, some of these projects take a really long time, Um, like the taxis behind me, which took nine years. And so I started um, working um, on projects well ahead of her age range so that by the time she reached that the appropriate age to, to access whatever it was, like a taking a taxi by herself, the project was ready. No, that's awesome. And I think a lot of the times, obviously, it was more so of a passion project for you to improve the quality of life and accessibility for your daughter. So I've, I've had people on like that where, you know, something's happened to a family member or themselves where they look to basically improve the system and make the, you know, system and process a lot better. Yes. And, and it was, you know, very selfish. It was, we just wanted to function. I was unwilling to give up the way we lived our life. And I didn't really understand why I suddenly had to. So I started working on projects that impacted us, whether it was the museums and theaters in New York City. And then as we traveled to different states, um, I worked on different states. When we went to national parks, I worked on national parks. Um, As she got older, I started working on transportation, whether it was taxis, passenger vessels, or rail. Um, And as I traveled globally, I tracked global best practices around the world and then pieced together 
um, a past practice guidelines that were essentially adopted by the National Park Service, which I helped to contribute to their guidelines. And it was basically, I just connected dots and, and helped to write what I perceived as common sense, but I learned was not so common. Um, but it wasn't like I had done anything brilliant. I was just connecting the dots from around the world. Yeah, sometimes it just takes somebody to kind of like run with the process. The process may not be, you know, you're reinventing or redeveloping something. You're just kind of advocating and put it at, putting it out there. And kind of in 2020, what are kind of the mandates and guidelines? Is it, are, are standards governed on a national level, state level? How's that kind of work? It's a really big mushmash, um, or mishmash, I should say, because there is the ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act in theory, and then there's what ha really happens. So the problem of the ADA this year was is now 30 years old, but it's a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth. So unlike if you go to a restaurant um, in some cities where they have ratings like A, B, C, and failure, there is nobody rating on institutions for accessibility for people with hearing loss. So therefore, the task falls on the people who need the protections or their parents, which is actually ridiculous. And then if you go around and you ask for the access, um, let's say you're going to a museum, it's not like they instantaneously just implement it. It could take years. So the theory is that you should go for it, you should ask for it, and then it'll be there when you arrive. But that's ridiculous because it, it can't, it's not so easily accessible. It needs to be installed. Money needs to be obtained. Um, it needs to be planned for. And it could take, like the taxis, it took me nine years to implement that. And some of the projects took, I'm working on the Smithsonian Museum in Washington that's now up to its 15th year, and it's still not implemented. Then the guidelines are so complicated because while there's this federal mandate, then you also have state and city guidelines, figuring out who to complain to if you have a problem and the, let's say the museum is not complying with your request. Like there's also the presumption that if you go to the museum and you ask nicely, they will of course say, oh, we will be happy to implement it. That is rarely the case. I can count on one hand how many times places did that. Most of the time they try to intimidate you they try to get you to go away. They try to ignore you. Um, you have to be diligent. It's exhausting. Um, in the case of the Smithsonian, it turned out the Department of Justice, um, which is one of the two major agencies that you would complain to about the ADA, the other being the U.S. Access Board, it turns out that neither the U.S. Access Board or the um, Department of Justice had oversight over the Smithsonian because the Smithsonian, it turns out, is a quasi-federal agency. And therefore, the only oversight committee is the Appropriations Committee in Congress. So to get the Smithsonian to do what seems like common sense for it to do, I have to go to the Appropriations Committee in Congress. Can you imagine, like, as just a regular person, oh, sure, I'll just call up the Appropriations Committee and say, hey, they're not doing this. And by the way, when you call up these places, they always tell you this is not the right time to do something, right? But there's, it's not like, oh, yes, because now we have a pandemic, you might say, oh, or this crazy with the presidential elections. But in 30 years, or in my case, having done this now for 18 years, I have yet to find anyone say, oh, perfect time. 
you came at the just perfect time. It's never the right time. As I just recently told the AP um, style book that, you know, when I was asking them to change their language and update it for appropriate language, they said, oh, they're very busy. Come back in January. It's not the right time. It's never the right time ever. And so can you imagine anyone saying that to Black Lives Matter? Sorry, this is not the right time for race relations. We're a little busy with the pandemic. Nobody would do that. But with people with disabilities, they always say that. And ableism, which is equivalent of racism, but against people with disabilities, is so accepted that nobody even knows what the word ableism means. Have you ever heard of the word ableism? No, I've not. No, nor has most people. This is no judgment. I would say like nobody outside the disability community has ever heard of the word ableism, ever. And when you ask what that means, I'm like, it's like racism, but for people with disabilities. And so it's so accepted that people just say it. And when you call them out, they call, they call you, you know, aggressive, all the terms they would use against a woman who is asserting her rights, um, they'll start coming out. And you're like, really, would you say that to a man? Would you say that to someone based on race? No. Then why are you saying that to me? And so that it's a, it's a huge problem. And the hardest part is that the people who need the access sometimes are not in a physical position to advocate as strongly because either they can't enter the room, they can't hear on the phone, or they can't access through the various channels. And so they places them in a position of not being able to get the access that the federal mandate guarantees them. Yeah, I, I mean, I can attest with uh, working with government agencies. My wife and I are uh, foster parents, so advocating on our foster kids' behalf when they have special needs and aren't getting the right services or disabilities or things that we notice. They may have a certain amount of hearing loss or vision that has never been identified and having people kind of just, you know, pass it around like, you know, go to this department, go to that department. Well, we already looked at that. I think it's just one of these things where at times you do have to get vocal and advocate regardless of, you know, kind of whose feelings you hurt, but you're not necessarily hurting anyone's feelings. You're just kind of you know, asserting what, what, you know, the, the basic things that need to really be done. Yes. In that instance, I find getting the various people's emails and when they tell you to go to the X department and, and you're coming from Y department, I see, see both department, both people. And I tell them, I feel like a parent caught between two children and to close the gap so that I don't fall between the crevice. I'm CCing both people. And please tell me between the two departments, where does this fall? And then in a situation like this with IEPs, what I used to do with my daughter is I put her picture on the front page. It's much harder to say no when there's a child's face staring at you, right? Than when you're some nameless, blankless person, another piece of paper. So I picked the best photo of my child that looked the most adorable and I personalized it. And I found that helped. Plus closing the crevices. Yeah, the the thing is, it, it's sad to say, but everything on our end ha- has to be very well documented in terms of every email, uh, every text message, because, you know, one instance during the whole lockdown is we kept advocating, advocating for services that, you know, the, the caseworker and the supervisor said, 
was never an issue. And it turned out like on the medical records, all these things were true and they actually lied about it. And then three months later, it just said, you know, this instance happened is because you're not paying attention to the child well enough. It's not, it's not us. We didn't drop the ball. So my wife, like you said, you know, CC, you know, everybody involved in the case, all the agencies, and then the 12 people that were copied eventually passed it along. And I think 60 people at the end of the day saw the email. And at that point, they were forced to act because there's too many eyes on it. So. And that's what you have to do. Um, I also find as a, it sounds like you're already doing this, keeping a phone log, um, documenting the, the date, the person you spoke to and the summary of the conversation. When I wanted to change the National Park Service guidelines, and I kept getting the runaround. Um, I contacted the Secretary of Interior at the time, it was Secretary Norton, and sent in a scheduling request. And attached to my scheduling request, I sent a 17-page phone log of every person I had contacted to make Ellis Island accessible. Needless to say, it resonated my point that I had tried everything possible to make Ellis Island accessible for my daughter's school trip, and I doubted there had been another parent on the planet who had done as much as I had done for a school trip. Apparently, the secretary agreed, and a meeting was set up. And I think the more you can paper trail and document um, and CC people, and it makes people really nervous. And then if they don't respond, I put in the subject line, second request, third request. It really goes past, when it goes past four, it's surprising. When it gets to eight, they usually respond. And when it gets into double digits, I know they're not going to respond. And there is a serious problem that they're looking to cover up. Um, because by the time you're hitting double digits, um, there's a greater problem there. By four, it's, oh, someone fell in between the cracks in their inbox. They're starting to get nervous when they see four. By eight, they're terrified. By 12, they don't give a crap. And that's where you know there's a bigger problem there and dig deeper to find out what the problem is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's sad, but like it literally everything is itemized, documented, sorted. It's just crazy. And in terms of like the mandates of the state, some conversations are recorded based on, you know, freedom of, you know, permission or privacy acts and stuff like that, just to make sure like, no, and actually at, you know, 745 in the morning on so-and-so date, this was actually stated via text message and you're contradicting that. So yeah, I can attest to that. Well, it sounds like your foster children are super lucky to have you because that, you know, that's what you have to do. And, and, and as Congressman Lewis told me um, when he was alive, you know, that when I asked him how to solve the problem for people with disabilities, he said, you got to make people uncomfortable. And sometimes he's right. That's what you have to do. Yeah, I agree. So what motivates you to succeed? Obviously, those motivations could have changed over time, depending on where you were in your life and things you had going on. What kind of currently motivates you to succeed? I love when um, people tell me how it, the access impacts their life. Um, and I see it with my daughter. So first off, I know what it, how it impacts my daughter. But when I hear from other people who would otherwise not be able to have the access, I love that. Um, you know, I went to law school. And the reason I went to law school, I'm, a num I'm a, a, an attorney on retirement status, so I don't practice law. Um, but I went to law school with noble goals of changing the world. I didn't know this was what in this was going to be the field. But I love doing that. 
And I love, I guess I've always loved working for the underdog. underdog. Um, I just love it. I love being able to make dramatic impact. And I think the crazier our world gets, the more um, I need to succeed and the more other people need me to succeed to give everyone hope, right? In this crazy environment, we want to see successes in the world. And I just love it. And I somehow seem to have a skill of being able to connect the dots. I'm super organized and that helps me accomplish the success. And I'm able to see um, a big picture and do strategic um, planning, which I never knew I was able to do. So I can, I'm, I don't know, somehow my skills, this is the perfect field for me to use my skills. And I love it. I, I have so much fun doing it. Even when it gets really tough, I'm like, okay. I love like, for example, when people underestimate me, um, I'm like, okay, you know, treat me like the blonde. Go that route. You are so ill-prepared. Um, and I love that. Yeah. I think obviously for you, it has that personal gratification of impacting your daughter directly and then a whole community as well. So I think when you find something that you're passionate about and it benefits other people, it's kind of like the, the perfect scenario. It's like finding your calling, because like you said, you may have had other kind of directions or goals when you kind of first started were in college, but all those skill sets and your strengths were put together and obviously are channeled and currently what you're doing today. Exactly. And, you know, I also feel like when you are fortunate, you have to pay it forward and to say thank you. So my daughter um, ended up going to a private girls school. She was the first at her private girls school to graduate with hearing loss in 100 years. She went to an Ivy League school, um, graduated um, with a 4.0 and is now an investment banker in London. And so as a result, I got what I wanted in terms of my daughter got to pick her own career. Um, someone didn't select it for her. And that was my goal. I didn't really care what she did, but I wanted her to have the choice of whatever her dreams were to follow her dreams. So I got that. So, and a lot of people helped. And so I think it's really important to understand this didn't just happen for me and all the people I, all the successes I accomplished are with huge amount of people helping me a lot of times behind the scenes um, because they can't be on the front lines, maybe because of their jobs, but they can tell me who to connect to or how to connect or whisper things in my ear of something I should know that they didn't quote, tell me. Um, and so the way you thank those people is by paying it forward. And so I, I just, I'm fortunate. I love what I do. I just really love it. That's awesome. So what's one thing that you may have seen as a weakness in yourself in the past that you've turned around and utilized as a strength today? Funny you should say that. I was just talking about it earlier. Um, I have tremendous memory issues. Tremendous. Like if you ask me something and need me to remember, it's likely I won't unless I write it down. And so as a result of my never remembering things, I write everything down and I'm super, super organized to the point of like, it's not normal organizational skills. And, but I have used that organization as a strength because of these phone logs, which have helped me. So I can stop working on a project because let's say right now, the political times are not sometimes you, something you want to work on something and you want to wait it out. And then you pick it up when the political climate changes 
but I know what I last did and who I spoke to. And so I have a project right now where someone emailed me and they're like, again, it's not a good time. I'm like, well, I actually need to write them an email and say, well, you know what? I was at the museum on X date and spoke to them and it wasn't a good time then. And it's never a good time. So tell me which date was a good time. And when I can reference uh, speaking to a person on a specific date that goes back, let's say five years ago, it's very powerful, um, scary to some people. Um, but that helps me tremendously in a way that if I was relying solely on memory, I would never have that kind of um, backup data. And that backup data allows me to succeed tremendously. So I turned my memory issues into a superpower by having incredible organization skills. Yeah, and I think it's important to kind of identify your strengths and weaknesses. I think double down on your strengths. And if you can fill a void or fill it with one of your strengths or like compensate for it, I think it'll take you a long way. I mean, I have so many things going on and it's just one of those things where so many things and so many things to remember coming from different places. If you're not documenting, something will slip through the cracks. We're not obviously machines, we're humans. And in that situation that, you know, documentation and that organization leads to a lot, you know, more results. And in your case, obviously referencing things two, three, four, five, you know, however many years in the past to, to benefit what you're currently working on and, and be super specific and kind of regimented about it. Yes. And I do it all the time. I mean, like I will pull out documentation and I can see people's eyeballs pop out like, Really? So like there was, you know, another instance where um, I was working on a project with an MTA on buses and hearing access. And they said, oh, it's never been piloted. And the person I was working with must have known he was going to die because he um, sent me the internal report. And I remember at the time wondering, why are you sending me an internal report? This seems risky. And like, why are you doing it? And then when I found out he died, I knew I, I understood. And I I filed it and thought, okay, let's see. And so when the former MTA um, chairman, Thomas Pendergrass, said it had never been piloted, and I'm like, yeah, actually it did. Here's the report, internal report. You know, there's that moment of satisfaction of saying, hmm, really? Don't go there. And then, of course, they, you know, they came up with another excuse, but I have learned to... I find for accessibility issues, it's like playing chess of five levels and you need to be super prepared and super organized. And you have to think about all the different options and how to plan for them. So, um, and it, what you referenced, like I use um, FOIL or Freedom of Information Act all the time to get documentation that I need. And man, is that super helpful. And then you file it and you may not use it right away, but when you need it, it's there. And so I, again, it goes back to the organization and being super prepared. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sad that you have to, like you said, play, play chess and you have to be several moves ahead and have those solutions because oftentimes, okay, well, we didn't do X. Well, in my, my uh, personal situations with, you know, in terms of foster care, well, this uh, child didn't get evaluated here or he didn't have this checkup and all of that's already taken care of and already anticipating, you know, what the nose can be. So there's no, absolutely no wiggle room in terms of getting the, the desired action that you're looking for. 
Exactly. And once people realize that's the type of person they're dealing with, they tend to back off because they realize you're not going to be victimized or easy prey and they'll go pick on someone else who's a lot easier to bother. I agree. So what's one piece of advice you may have for the audience, personal or professional? Um, I, I would say, well, one that I just referenced is, is the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I think when you're dealing with government agencies, most people don't realize that you can submit a request under, and you put in the subject line, Freedom of Information Act, or in some states or cities, it's FOIL. Um, it's either F-O-I-A or F-O-I-L. Um, and you can request documents. And so if you're not getting information or people are saying they didn't receive it, and you know you sent it, one way to do um, to document and prove that you did is to request it under Freedom of Information Act, and then the files are sent to you. Um, especially if you want case notes or things, they'll, they may redact them, but it's super helpful to prove that someone has received it. But I think the most important advice, and I had it recently with somebody who wanted to speak with me and missed two phone calls, and is follow-up. Most people fail to follow up, and so they don't succeed because they don't follow up. And something that um, Vernon Jordan told me was, it took four phone calls or emails to get to have a meeting with him. And he said, I followed up the appropriate amount of times without being aggressive and the appropriate amount of spacing between. And it's a gut reaction, like not hound someone, but just appropriately follow up. And he said, I'm not going to waste my time if someone can't be bothered following up. And I feel the same way. And, you know, if you're, if someone wants a meeting with someone, follow up with them. I think people's schedules are super busy and they're not going to invest the time in your issue unless they know you're interested or vested in the issue. So following up with people, it's, you know, as my mother used to say, um, with golf and tennis, everything is in the follow through. And I, I agree with that. I think um, most people assume you're not going to follow up and they just hope you won't. And then you, they could just delete you from their inbox. And then when they realize, oh, you're actually going to follow up, I actually have to address it, they do. So I, I think people underestimate the follow-up and, and it follow-up doesn't mean one call. It could take upwards of, like I said, as many as it takes. And when people are never going away, and I think it's important to let people know you're never going away, ever. Yeah, I agree. And and even even a little further in terms of kind of bringing about change or advocacy, I think a lot of people are kind of scared that there may be one, they may be one person, they can't, you know, affect any change. And basically, you know, if I ask this, I'm going to get a no. So the fear of a no, you know, uh, prohibits them from even asking. So I think it's important to go out there and if you're passionate about change or, you know, leading to something in terms of how a system is now that you see flaws in it that can be improved, really going out there, putting yourself out there and asking even before so, because a lot of people have that fear of no or even asking and then never know what impact they could have had. Exactly. And, you know, one of my, my tour guides once told me this great saying, and I love it. You start with a no, it can only turn into a yes. And once you realize that, you're like, really, what am I so afraid of? So they say no. I mean, and I'm not someone who is afraid to, to ask anyone. Um, there was a recent article about me in Forbes. 
where I went to the Queen of England asking for access at Buckingham Palace and the people at Buckingham Palace in the tour area didn't um, provide, the signage was incorrect and I couldn't get them to care. And it didn't matter what I did. So I decided, I bet you the queen will care. So I wrote a letter and and they responded and they changed it. And most people might not think to contact the queen of England, but everybody is the same. Like I treat the queen of England the same as I treat a janitor, right? Like every, to me, people are human beings. And once I got over that fear of like reaching out to people, I found out most people are accessible and the people who are not accessible and are, do come back with them when those tend to be the people who take like 12 email, there's usually a greater problem. Like there was one person that I couldn't get at the intrepid to respond, blocked my e- emails. Turned out he got indicted for embezzlement. And like, that's why he had bigger problems. And, and I, you know, most people don't think like what else is going on, but I guess he had big things. And once I got the Pentagon involved, the access I needed got implemented. But and I don't think it always has to do with um, embezzlement or criminal, but people have things going on and you just have to raise your issue to the top of the pile. And persistence is one of the ways of doing it because um, Philippe de Montebello, who used to be the executive director at the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, I read an article in the newspaper, and this is another great tip. I love reading. And you can get super helpful tips when you read the newspaper. And there was an article about Felipe Montebello that said um, he likes to get rid of projects. Like he just wants things off his desk. And, and then like anybody who's like keeps persisting, he just gets them done because he just does wants it done. And I thought, oh, that is the most valuable tip. So I kept calling regularly and spoke to his assistant, Susie, who is so lovely. And I called so often, Susie knew my voice. And I would say, hi, Susie, it's me again. She was like, I know, I'm calling about the access at the Met, isn't implemented. And after a while, I called so many times, the Met implemented the access, right? So it's about being persistent and knowing people are going to sometimes just want you, you know, the the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I'm just an ordinary person. It's not like I have some special super talent to accomplish success, you know, projects. Yeah, I mean, it's persistence and it's kind of outlasting and being kind of last one there. I mean, if you want to relate it to business, oftentimes, if you look at the companies currently, Fortune 500s or what have you, they simply outlasted their competitors, obviously innovated and things of that nature, but they outlasted and and did everything they needed to do in that sense. And kind of, you want to look at it like, you know, that that organization or that person is like an opponent you're going to get to a point where, where you overwhelm them so much with kind of that attention that it's easier for them to implement it over than dealing with you time and time again. So, Exactly. And I also find like it helps if you start at the top. So I reach out to heads of organizations because it, it's a problem if you start with like somebody and then you go above their head. Nobody likes that. They find it, you know, it's off-putting. So if you start at the top, And then the person at the top approves it. The person at the bottom has the authority to then implement whatever it is. And you're not going over their head. And it it starts off the relationship vastly different than if you go over their head. And like, so I will regularly go to executive directors. I will go to heads of state. 
kings, queens, you name it. I have like, you know, no shame. I will ask whoever it is. And I've read really reach out to, you know, prime ministers and um, presidents of countries for help. Um, just last week, I was emailing a prime minister and a former prime minister for help. And they were connecting me. And, you know, most people will think like, well, you know, but they're afraid to do that. Why? They're regular people. And you would be surprised, like everybody's email is on the internet these days. Thanks to data issues, you can pretty much find everybody on the internet. There's always somebody who forgot to redact a document with someone's email. <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, there's a touch point, like you said, you can either find an email, a phone number. I mean, people have social media, somebody either running their social media accounts or them personally direct messaging them. So being persistent and, and working and having technology on your side to kind of you know, find the right person, like you said. LinkedIn is another great way, right? A lot of people, you know, when you connect, there's a little place to put a message, stick a message in. You know, some people won't, but the more stuff you throw against the wall, the more likely something will stick and the more persistent. And I think a lot of people respect um, people being persistent because they see themselves in, in you and they want to be part. And then also another tip that I have is, when you have successes and if you win awards, put those awards under your signature so that when you send an email, people can quickly, um, awards are almost as um, an acknowledgement that you've been vetted. And so I list all my awards under my signature so that when someone receives an email, they can automatically, without digging deep, because we all assume everybody's going to read our stuff. Nobody has time. So if you put your awards under your signature, they're like, oh, this person has been, okay, like that's a four second read. And then they can dig deeper. And, you know, I put my website LinkedIn under my signature, but it's just fast. And I think if you have credibility, once you start getting awards, and I think it's also important to apply for awards, um, especially for women. A friend of mine who um, studies high achievers, Ruth Gautian, said, um, Men apply for awards, women don't, and they don't think to ask. And I think that's a really valuable lesson to, for women to start applying for awards because that's what helps gives you credibility. Yeah, I agree. So I really appreciate you stopping by today. Can you let the audience know how they can find you or anything else you have going on? Sure. Um, my websites are hearingaccess.com. And the other one is my name, Janice, J-A-N-I-C-E, Lintz, L-I-N-T-Z.com. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by. Thank you for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.